0: Hello, Tumble listeners. As you've probably already guessed, Lindsay and I are on summer break, hard at work, making more great episodes of Tumble for all of you in the fall. In the meantime, we want to share some great podcasts with you. Today, we want to introduce you to Ty Asks Why. Ty Asks Why from CBC Podcasts is hosted by 15-year-old Ty Poole. Ty won't rest until he's uncovered the mysteries of the universe one probing question at a time. In season four of his webby-winning podcast, Ty talks to everyone from NASA scientists, to stand-up comedians, to his equally curious little brother. In this episode, Ty asks the question, how do animals know where they're going? We know that birds can travel long distances, day or night, rain or shine, even if they've never migrated before. And if you confuse a spiny lobster and drop it far from home, it can still find its way back. But really, like, how do they do that? Find out in this episode, just after this.
1: So I'm supposed to be looking for a large pond. I'm about to cross a bridge. The weather, it's hot and clear. I'm going to just get lost and eventually end up finding the treasure someday. Okay, so you might be wondering why on earth I was out on a sweltering hot day, wandering around a park in Toronto, searching for treasure? Well, I was just trying to see just how good my navigation skills are. I feel like I've always had a pretty good sense of direction. I mean, I can point to the nearest 7-Eleven no problem, and this one time with my mom in Korea, I found a way back to our hotel through the complicated subway line, and I can't even read Korean. But this? Oh man, I was, I was struggling. So right now I'm heading northwest until you reach a pungent lagoon. Oh, gross. I don't want to go to a poop lagoon. I am going in the wrong direction. I'm gonna get myself locked. My producers had given me a compass in a set of instructions that were definitely not in any way confusing. Head north. Very slightly northwest until you reach a lagoon. Head west to a meadow. Stuff like that, right? All to find this fallen tree with some very valuable treasure. A big bag of Doritos. And you guys know how much I love Doritos. How am I still going north? North is now this way. What is (laughs) happening? If I were a bird or a dog, finding my way would all be so much easier. I could just sniff out the Doritos, or fly above the forest and scout it out from a bird's-eye view. Lots of animals can cross continents and oceans without obvious tools, and there's no such thing as a bird Google Maps. So, how do they do that, then? How do animals know where they're going? Ty asked why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are so many good questions out there that you just really want to have answered. What will money look like in the future? Can we keep eating meat without destroying the planet? Why do we love junk food so much? Are we alone in the universe? And how do animals know where they're going? There's this type of dragonfly I learned about recently. Scientists are fascinated by its migration. It looks like it starts in northern India. And at one point in its life, it migrates all the way over the ocean to East Africa. And there, it has some cute little dragonfly babies. Then, scientists think the babies go all the way back to India using a different route. That would be like me when I was a baby making my way from Toronto to Auckland, the city in New Zealand where my mom grew up.
2: The more I looked into it, the more amazed and fascinated I became. And of course, it's full of mysteries, because although we've learned a lot, there are many, many animals that do things, navigational things that we just don't understand and are really mind-boggling.
1: That's David Berry. He's a writer, researcher and navigator. He wrote a book about human navigation called Sextant. That got him hooked on the way animals get around. And that led him to write the book SuperNavigators.
2: I mean, basically any animal that has the power of motion, even single-celled organisms, need to be able to find their way around, even if, even if it's just really simple stuff. And when you come to more complicated animals like birds and fishes and insects and so on, uh, then you really encounter... The most complicated forms of navigation, some of which are way beyond what we human beings can do.
1: Lots of animals have really cool navigation tricks up their sleeves. Some of them make sense to us humans because we do them too, like landmark navigation. Humans memorize different things along the routes that they're traveling, like the coffee shop on the corner or the CN Tower or something huge like a mountain. Actually, I get this one. Up until a few years ago, I didn't even really know any street names. I would just memorize the stores that were on each corner, right? And the library was my landmark. So every time I was walking home from school, I would know to turn left as soon as I saw it.
2: And then uh, there's something a bit more complicated, which again, lots of animals do, including us. By navigators, it's called dead reckoning. And by scientists, they have a fancy name for it. They call it path integration. The idea is that you you have a way of determining what direction you're heading in, which might be, for example, a magnetic compass. And you have some way of measuring how far you've gone. And by measuring how far you've gone in a particular direction, you can work out where you are in relation to the point where you started from.
1: This is what I was doing, or at least was trying to do in High Park to find the bag of Doritos. But unlike me, animals can't pull out a compass when they're trying to figure out where to go. Their compasses are somehow internal, and some of them are magnetic, but they also use other cues, like the sun or the stars, and some even use the Milky Way as a compass. And then look at me. <laughs> I can't even seem to find north even on, like, a magnetic compass. <laughs> ah, I am not having my doubts about where I'm going. I will keep walking in this direction because I think this is the only way to go. I can see houses. I can see trees. I can see Ty sipping on a nice cold glass of Gatorade. Something on that streetcar was pulling my magnet. I, just for a second, it just pointed towards it, and then pointed back. That's fascinating. I'm going to go down the dirt path. Dirt path part two. Redemption. So it struck me as I was walking around High Park. I didn't have to do this. Sure, like, my producers were making me, but I could have just not done it, right? It was just for a bag of Doritos. But other animals don't really have a choice. So I had to ask David... Why do the animals need to move around so much? Why don't they just sit on their bird couches for the rest of their life, just lounging in one spot?
2: (laughs) Well, it's a really good question. And mostly it looks as if they do that because it enables them to get access to food resources and maybe better weather conditions. Every animal needs to ideally find a mate. It may need to avoid predators And for all sorts of reasons, it may have to move around. It may have to move quite rapidly in unpredictable ways. But it will probably have a kind of home or a home range that it needs to return to. And it it will need always to be able to find its way back.
1: David's favorite example is a really cool critter that uses a whole bunch of navigation tools, the desert ant.
2: You've got to imagine it's living in this godforsaken desert environment I mean salt pans flat salt pans in the Sahara Desert bakingly hot so hot that the desert ant itself will die of heat if it doesn't move quickly enough and get back into its nest fast enough the nest obviously is under the ground and the only way you know there's a nest there is because there's a tiny little hole big enough to let an ant in or out so your desert ant worker comes out of the hole and it runs around and it may go several hundred meters zigzagging around looking for food which may take the form of a dead butterfly. It seizes the dead butterfly in its jaws and then it's got to get back to its nest. We it can't possibly see it.
1: David says this is where the ant's powers kick in.
2: This is where dead reckoning, path integration comes into play. All the time that ant is moving away from the nest entrance. It is logging how far it's gone and in what direction and every course change. And what they've shown is that the desert ant for a compass relies on the polarised light of the sun and it can use that polarised light pattern in the sky to determine the direction it's going in. And then, how does it measure the distance? Well, guess what? It basically counts its steps.
1: Scientists figured this part out in a pretty freaky experiment. They chopped off the legs of some desert ants and lengthened the legs of others. And they found that the ones with shorter legs didn't make it far enough and the ones with longer legs would overshoot their nests. Yeesh. The desert ant also uses wind and smell cues to get around, and it also has an internal compass. I mean, basically, these tiny critters have a huge tool belt to make sure that they don't fry in the hot desert sun.
2: The thing is, you know, evolution over hundreds of years has fine tuned these systems uh, so that they are just super efficient. You know, the desert ant has a brain with maybe 400,000 neurons in it. Our brains may be 85 billion, but with just 400,000 neurons, a tiny, tiny little speck of a brain, they can do all of that and they can do it really well, better than we could.
1: Man, I wish I had one of these internal compasses because I swear, the one I was using was pulling me in all sorts of directions.
3: It turns out that a number of animals can sense the Earth's magnetic field. And in some cases, they can not only use that as a compass, as we do with our handheld compasses when we're hiking, but they also can extract quite a bit of information about where they are from the magnetic field. In other words, they can actually use the magnetic field as a kind of GPS or a global positioning system Much as we use satellite based systems to tell us where we are.
1: That's Ken Lohman. He's a biology professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He studies the way marine life navigates, like turtles, salmon, and lobsters. He's done a lot of research on sea turtles because they have a pretty impressive migration. It's about 10,000 miles or 16,000 kilometers. These turtles start their journey in the Florida Keys go all the way across the Atlantic Ocean to Europe, then to Africa, and after that, they go back to the same beach where they started their life decades earlier. So they cross the Atlantic again. These are baby turtles who have never done this migration before, and they don't even have their parents or their friends to help them. They do this by using the Earth's magnetic field. The magnetic field covers our entire planet, oh, I'll give you a second to Google it. You see it now, right? It's basically circles of magnetic force going around the planet, coming out from one pole and reaching up and around to the other one.
3: Close to the equator, the magnetic field is relatively weak. And as you get closer to the magnetic poles, the field gets stronger and stronger. Um, similarly, the angle that the magnetic field lines make relative to the Earth's surface changes across the surface of the globe.
1: Many animals rely on the strength and angle of the magnetic field to figure out where they are. These turtles that Ken studies actually have a set of instructions, sort of like I did in High Park, so they know where to go when they're migrating.
3: So at some locations they know to turn south, at other locations they'll, they'll turn uh, toward the west, uh, and, and so on. So they actually seem to inherit a set of instructions that tell them what direction to swim when they encounter certain magnetic fields along the migratory path.
1: Animals have tons of different environmental cues that help them navigate like landmarks and even certain smells that may be carried by the wind.
3: But when you think of almost all of these environmental cues, they come and go. Uh, visual landmarks, for example, are easy to see during the day, but much more difficult at night. With sounds such as waves breaking on the coast, those can get louder uh, during storms and they can go away if the ocean is very calm. But The one cue that stays constant pretty much throughout the day and night and pretty much throughout the year is the Earth's magnetic field. And that may be one reason that uh, many animals have evolved the ability to detect this. It's just a cue that is constantly available in a way that almost nothing else is.
1: It makes sense that these animals would want to use the magnetic field. I mean, it doesn't set like the sun or the stars do. It's always there. And there are lots of animals that use it. I mean, sea turtles and salmon use it. Lots of birds use it. And so does the desert ant. And the Caribbean spiny lobster, a.k.a. the rock lobster. Ken has spent a lot of time with spiny lobsters. Well, more like he spent his time trying to confuse
3: them. So in a first set of experiments, we, we captured lobsters in... Their coral reef dens, and then we immediately put them into plastic containers so that we could keep them in the dark. We put the uh, plastic containers on board a little motorboat, and we drove the motorboat in circles for about 15 minutes to try to confuse the lobsters. Then we uh, went uh, weaving back and forth across the channel on the way back to the lab where we were uh, doing the experiments. We also kept the lobsters in the same seawater that they'd been captured in so that they couldn't get any chemical cues about where they were being taken. And we we even uh, took magnets and swung those back and forth above them to disrupt the magnetic field so that the lobsters couldn't cheat and use their magnetic sense to figure out where they were being taken. We we then tested them uh, the next morning, and the lobsters uh, walked in a direction that would take them directly back toward their capture site. We no, <laughs> they did. We we didn't believe it at first. Uh, so we did several additional experiments, capturing in them in uh, different areas and bringing them to various locations. And in each case, uh, the lobsters were able to walk in the direction that would take them back toward home.
1: That is insane. I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit broken. You broke. You broke <laughs> me, Kenneth.
3: It's, it's an astonishing ability. Uh, it took us a long time to believe that uh, they really were doing this. We, we did a long series of experiments, uh, each time thinking we would uh, disprove the idea, and instead, e- each time the evidence for it became stronger.
1: So, I used to be a Desert ant fan, but... Now I'm totally team lobster. I mean, it'd be so cool to have one as a pet. It would never get lost and I could teach it to bring me home when I wandered a little too far out looking for Doritos. Or like, when I don't have a clue where I'm going. What is a lagoon? I know it's like a type of body of water. is a lagoon anyway. <gasps> Water. Ah. Oh. The pungent lagoon they called it. <laughs> oh, a bridge. A bridge. A br- a bridge. There's a bridge. There's supposed to be a bridge for the lagoon. In case you couldn't figure it out. I wasn't exactly doing so hot with the navigation challenge in the park. But what brought me back was hearing the water. That's how I figured out where to go. So, do other animals use sound to get around? Scientists think that there are some birds that use sound to navigate across the ocean, in particular, using something called infrasound. I talked to Samantha Patrick to learn a bit more about this. She's a senior lecturer in marine biology at the University of Liverpool.
4: So sound comes in a range of frequencies. So you have what we call audible sound, which is the sound that humans can hear. And this can be from really low, low frequency sounds, so kind of booming low uh, uh, sounds right up to high frequency sounds. These would be the kind of more squeaky sounds that you might hear. And then beyond that, you have very high frequency sound, which is something like ultrasound, which we can't hear, but we use uh, for medical purposes. And then at the other end, you have very low frequency sound, like infrasound. So it's below the uh, range in which humans can hear, but it is used by some animals. So animals uh, such as elephants and whales are able to both create infrasound and they're also able to detect it.
1: Samantha told me that lots of things create infrasound. When a volcano erupts... That generates infrasound. Big storms like hurricanes and cyclones create it too. So do waves when they crash on the shore. Then there are human things that make infrasound like airplanes, rockets, and nuclear explosions. Here's an example of infrasound, turned way, way up so you can actually hear it. Sounds kind of spooky, right? Infrasound can travel a really long way, especially when it's not interrupted by anything. Samantha is looking into infrasound as a type of seabird navigation, and right now she's working on something called the Seabird Sound Project.
4: The Seabird Sound Project is a large collaborative project where um, seabird biologists, which is me, are working with uh, physiologists, geophysicists, and uh, mathematicians. So by working all together, what we're able to do is we're able to bring that together to answer the question of whether seabirds might use infrasound to navigate.
1: Seabirds like arctic terns and albatrosses go on really impressive migration and foraging trips. They travel some of the longest distances of any animal, like from the Arctic to Antarctica and back in just one year. And they're crossing oceans where you can't see anything but water. So Samantha and her team of scientists are looking at whether these birds are figuring out where they are by using infrasound.
4: So what our research has focused on is the idea that you can produce infrasound maps. So if a bird was moving along you would be able to think about all the sources of infrasound or where the infrasound is coming from and what kind of information that could give the bird. So if we take the example of when waves are crashing against the coastline, if that action created infrasound with a certain signal and the birds could hear that that was um, on their left-hand side, for example, they would then know that that coastline was on their left. And they will be able to use that to orient. So maybe the bird wants to go towards the coastline because it's breeding very close by. Or maybe it would know that it wants to stay away from the coastline because maybe the environment's better for feeding if it stays further away.
1: So instead of it being like a GPS, it would hear a sound and know to move towards or away from it there could also be a unique infrasound signal for the bird's home. So it would hear it and know, ah, okay, it's time for me to pack up and head
4: home to that sound. We've been trying to work out whether we can detect these changes in behavior when we look at the birds. So we're looking at um, the bird's foraging behavior. So we have a little GPS logger on it when it leaves the colony. And what we can do is we can look at where the bird goes and we can look at the decisions that it seems to be making in terms of when it turns towards home or when it starts to feed. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to then um, use that GPS data in addition to these infrasound maps, which the geophysicists on the project have created, and then to be able to say, okay, is there evidence that our birds are changing what they do in relation to the infrasound signatures of the environment? It's so cool to think about these
1: birds changing where they're going based on what they're hearing, but... Unfortunately, humans might actually be messing that up.
4: Um, I think definitely in the future and probably at the moment, the uh, activities of humans are changing the infrasoundscape itself. So we know, for example, that airplanes create infrasound, things like uh, rockets going to space, and with the increase of uh, space travel, as it were, this will also uh, uh, cause changes in the environment. Things like fishing vessels... Exploration for oil and gas, deep sea mining, lots and lots of these different activities are creating infrasound. And if these become um, more abundant or spread more widely across the ocean, that will affect the soundscape. And that might affect what the birds can hear and how they navigate,
1: which makes sense. I mean, humans are really noisy and the machines we make are even louder. So that got me thinking, are we also noisy in our magnetic field?
3: There are a number of uh, features of human environments that potentially disrupt magnetic orientation. Power lines, for example, generate strong magnetic fields. The steel beams in buildings and houses that we live in uh, also change the magnetic environment. Uh, So in many parts of the world, uh, the magnetic environment is not really as good as it once was for uh, magnetic navigation.
1: Remember those sea turtles that Ken studies? They memorize the magnetic signature of their home beach. So things like metal and hotels and resorts built along the shore might actually mess up their ability to find their way back home. David says human activity is affecting a lot of animal migrations because of habitat loss and climate change.
2: It's just another element in the what is probably the biggest challenge facing the human race, which is how do we adapt our ways of living so that we don't essentially turn the earth into a wasteland.
1: Guys, I'm 15 and I shouldn't have to worry about this stuff as much as I do. So, can we please just start getting our act together? I mean, if rock lobsters and desert ants can expertly navigate with a fraction of the neurons that we have, well, enough said. I know what you're wondering by now. Did I ever find that bag of Doritos? over here it's another fallen tree i will just follow any fallen tree at this point i mean this is a pretty big yes ah. Ah. oh i did it phew what an adventure that was Maybe next time I'll bring my pet rock lobster to find the Doritos for me. Ty asks why. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Ty Poo. This show is produced by Rachel Levy-McLaughlin, Eunice Kim, and Judy Z goo This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons. Bram McDonald is our sound designer. Additional mixing by Braden Alexander. The theme music is by Johnny Spence. Sound engineer is my father, Min Nguyen, and our location manager is my mom, Nikki Poole. Today, my guests were David Berry, Ken Lohman, and Samantha Patrick. SK Robert is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and the director of CBC Podcasts is Araf Narani. If you liked this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Please consider taking some time to rate and review Ty Asks Why on your favorite podcast app. It makes a big difference in helping others find the show. Till next time, I'm Ty, keep asking why.
0: Thanks so much for listening to that episode of Ty Asks Why from our friends at CBC Podcasts. You can find Ty Asks Why wherever you get your podcasts or wherever you're listening to Tumble. We hope you really enjoyed it. And now that it's over, we got some birthday shoutouts to give to our supporters on Patreon. Reese, stay curious, and happy birthday on July 10th. Janie, your mommy and daddy's favorite scientist, happy birthday on July 13th. Onya, keep exploring, and happy birthday on July 15th. Anton Stella, happy 13th birthday on July 15th. Wow, 13! Your family loves you to the moon and back. Felix Joel Quinones, happy birthday on July 20th from mom Kevin Martin and the Sanchez family. Keep being curious, don't ever stop asking questions, and stay focused, little scientist. Mommy Bear loves you forever. Edie Megan, keep on being curious, and happy birthday on July 20th as well. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. If you want to get a birthday shout-out of your own, like these fine folks, simply support Tumble on Patreon at the $5 level or higher by going to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash tumble podcast.